All Hallows by Walter de la Mare. Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. All Hallows by Walter de la Mare. Part 1. And because time itself can receive no alteration, the hallowing must consist in the shape or countenance which we put upon the affairs that are incident in these days. Richard Hooker It was about half-past three on an August afternoon when I found myself for the first time looking down upon all hallows, and at first glimpse of it every vestige of fatigue and vexation passed away. I stood at gaze, as the old phrase goes, like the two children of Israel, sent in to spy out the promised land. How often the imagined transcends the real not so all hallows, having at last reached the end of my journey, flies, dust, heat, wind, having at last come limping out upon the green sea-bluff beneath which lay its walls, I confess the actuality excelled my feeble dreams of it. What most astonished me, perhaps, was the sense, not so much of its age, its austerity, or even its solitude, but its air of abandonment. It lay couched there, as if in its narrow sea-bay, not a sound was in the air, not a jackdaw clapped its wings among its turrets. No other roof, not even a chimney, was in sight. Only the dark blue arch of the sky, the narrow snow-line of the ebbing tide, and that gaunt coast fading away into the haze of a west over which were already gathering the veils of sunset. We had met, then, at an appropriate hour and season, and yet, I wonder, for it was certainly not the beauty of all hallows, lulled as if into a dream in this serenity of air and heavens, which was to leave the sharpest impression upon me. And what kind of her showing would it have made, I speculated, if an autumnal gale had been shrilling and trumpeting across its narrow bay, clots of wind-borne spume floating among its dusky pinnacles, and the roar of the sea echoing against its walls. Imagine it frozen stark in winter, icy hoar-frost edging its every boss, moulding finial crocket cusp indeed are there not works of man legacies of a half-forgotten past scattered across this human world of ours from china to peru which seem to daunt the imagination with their incomprehensibility incomprehensible i mean in the sense that the passion that inspired and conceived them is incomprehensible viewed in the light of the passing day they might be the monuments of a race of demigods and yet if we could but free ourselves from our timidities, realise that even we ourselves have an obligation to leave behind us similar memorials, testaments to the creative and faithful genius, not so much of the individual as of humanity itself. However that may be, it was my own personal fortune to see All Hallows for the first time in the heat of the dog days after a journey which could hardly have been justified except by its end. At this moment of the afternoon the great church almost cheated one into the belief that it was possessed of a life of its own. It lay, as I say, couched in its natural hollow, basking under the dark dome of the heavens like some half-fossilised monster that might at any moment stir and awaken out of the swoon to which the wand of the enchanter had committed it. And with every inch of the sun's descending journey it changed its appearance. That is the charm of such things, Man himself, says the philosopher, is the sport of change. 
his life and the life around him are but the flotsam of a perpetual flux yet haunted by ideals egged on by impossibilities he builds his vision of the changeless and time diversifies it with its colours and its effects at leisure it was drawing near to harvest now the summer was nearly over the corn would soon be in stook the season of silence had come not even the robins had yet begun to practise their autumnal lament i should have come earlier the distance was of little account but nine flinty hills in seven miles is certainly had commons to plod the occupant of a cloud of dust up one steep incline and so see another to plod up that and see a third to surmount that and half choked half roasted to see as if in unbelievable mirage a fourth and always stone walls discoloured grass no flower but ragged ragwort whitened fleabane moody nettle and the exquisite stubborn bindweed with its almond burdened senses and always the glitter and dazzle of the sun well the experience grows irksome had barricaded his verdurous estate a fly-infested mile of the company of that wall was tantamount to making one's way into the infernal regions with tantalus for a fellow pilgrim and when a solitary and empty dung wagon had lumbered by lifting the dumb dust out of the road in swirling clouds into the heat quivering air i had all but wept aloud no i shall not easily forget that walk or the conclusion of it when footsore all but dead beat dust all over me cheeks lips eyelids in my hair dust in drifts even between my naked body and my clothes i stretched my aching limbs on the turf under the straggle of trees which clowned the bluff of that last hill still blessedly green and verdant and feasted my eyes on the cathedral beneath me how odd memory is in her sorting arrangements how perverse her pigeonholes it had reminded me of a drizzling evening many years ago i had stayed a moment to listen to an old salvation army officer preaching at a street corner the sopped and squalid houses echoed with his harangue his penitent's drum resembled the block of an executioner his goatish beard wagged at every word he uttered my brothers and sisters he was saying the very instant our fleshy bodies are born they begin to perish the moment the lord has put them together time begins to take them to pieces again now at this very instant if you listen close you can hear the nibblings and frettings of the moth and rust within the worm that never dies it's the same with human causes and creeds and institutions just the same oh then for that strand of beauty where all that is immortal shall be shed away and we shall appear in the likeness and very similitude of what in sober and awful truth we are the light striking out of an oil and colourman shop at the street corner lay across his cheek and beard and glassed his eye the circle of humanity in which he was gesticulating stood staring and motionless the lassies the probationers the melancholy idlers i had had enough i went away but it is odd that so utterly inappropriate a recollection should have edged back into my mind at this moment there was as i have said not a living soul in sight only a few seabirds oyster catchers maybe were jangling on the distant beach it was now a quarter to four by my watch and the usual pensive lynn lan lone from the belfry beneath me would soon no doubt be ringing to evensong but if at that moment a triple bob major had suddenly clanged its alarm over sea and shore 
I couldn't have stirred a finger's breadth. Scanty though the shade afforded by the wind-shorn tuft of trees under which I lay might be, I was ineffably at peace. No bell, as a matter of fact, loosed its tongue that stagnant half-hour, and less than the walls beneath me already concealed a few such chance visitors as myself, all hallows would be empty, a cathedral without a close, but without a congregation. Yet another romantic charm. The deanery and the residences of its clergy, my old guidebook had long since informed me, were a full mile or more away. I determined in due time first to make sure of an entry, and then, having quenched my thirst, to bathe. How inhuman any extremity, hunger, fatigue, pain, desire, makes us poor humans. Thirst and drought so haunted my mind that again and again, as I glanced towards it, I supped up at one long draught, that complete blue sea, but meanwhile, too, my eyes had been steadily exploring and searching out this monument of the bygone centuries beneath me. The headland faced approximately due west. The windows of the Lady Chapel, therefore, lay immediately beneath me, their fourteenth-century glass showing flatly dark amid their traceries. Above it, the shallow V-shaped, leaden-ribbed roof of the chancel converged towards the unfinished tower, then broke away at right angles, for the cathedral was cruciform. Walls so ancient and so sparsely adorned and decorated could not but be inhospitable in effect. Their stone was of a bleached bone grey, a grey that nonetheless seemed to be as immaterial as flame or incandescent ash. They were substantial enough, however, to cast a marvellously loosened shadow of a blue no less vivid but paler than that of the sea on the shelving sward beneath them, and that shadow was steadily shifting as I watched. But even if the complete edifice had vanished into the void, the scene would still have been of an incredible loveliness. The colours in air and sky on this dangerous coast seemed to shed a peculiar unreality, even on the rocks of its own works. So, from my vantage place on the hill that dominates it, I continued for a while to watch all hallows, to spy upon it, and no less intently than a sentry who not quite trusting his own eyes, has seen a dubious shape approaching him in the dusk. It may sound absurd, but I felt that at any moment I too might surprise All Hallows in the act of revealing what in very truth it looked like, and was, when no human witness was there to share its solitude. Those gigantic statues, for example, which flanked the base of the unfinished tower, an intense bluish-white in the sunlight, and a purplish-blue in shadow, Images of angels and of saints, as I had learned of old from my guidebook, only six of them at most could be visible, of course, from where I sat, and yet I found myself counting them again and yet again, as if doubting my own arithmetic, for my first impression had been that seven were in view. Though the figure furthest from me, at the western angle, showed little more than a jutting fragment of stone, which might, perhaps, be only part and parcel of the fabric itself but then the lights even of day may be deceitful and fantasy plays strange tricks with one's eyes. With exercise nonetheless, the mind is enabled to detect minute details which the unaided eye is incapable of particularising. Given the imagination, man himself indeed may some day be able to distinguish what shapes are walking during our own terrestrial midnight amid the black shadows of the craters in the noonday of the moon. At any rate, I could trace at last frets of carving, minute weather marks, crookednesses, incrustations, repairings, that had before passed unnoticed. These walls, indeed, 
like human faces, were maps and charts of their own long past. In the midst of this prolonged scrutiny, the hypnotic air, the heat, must suddenly have overcome me. I fell asleep up there in my grove's scanty shade, and remained asleep too, long enough, as time is measured by the clocks of sleep, to dream an immense panoramic dream. On waking, I could recall only the faintest vestiges of it, and found that the hand of my watch had crept on but a few minutes in the interval. It was eight minutes past four. I scrambled up, numbed and inert, with that peculiar sense of panic which sometimes follows an uneasy sleep. What folly to have been frittering away time within sight of my goal, at an hour when, no doubt, the cathedral would soon be closed to visitors and abandoned for the night to its own secret ruminations. I hastened down the steep, rounded incline of the hill, and, having skirted under the sunlit expanse of the walls, came presently to the south door, only to discover that my forebodings had been justified, and that it was already barred and bolted. The discovery seemed to increase my fatigue fourfold. How foolish it is to obey mere caprices. What a straw is a man. I glanced up at the beautiful shell of masonry above my head. Shapes and figures in stone it showed in plenty, symbols of an imagination that had flamed and faded, leaving this signature for sole witness. But not a living bird or butterfly. There was but one faint chance left of making an entry. Hunted now, rather than the hunter, I hastened out again into the full, blazing flood of sunshine, and once more came within sight of the sea a sea so near at last that I could hear its enormous sallies and murmurings. Indeed, I had not realised until that moment how closely the great western doors of the cathedral abutted on the beach. It was as if its hospitality had been deliberately designed not for a people to whom the faith of which it was a shrine had become a weariness and a commonplace, but for the solace of pilgrims from over the ocean. I could see them tumbling into their cockle boats out of their great hollow ships, sails idle, anchors down, see them leaping ashore and straggling up the sands to these all-welcoming portals, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia and in the parts of Egypt about Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. We do hear them speak in our own tongue the wonderful works of God. And so at last I found my way into All Hallows, entering by a rounded dwarfish side door with zigzag mouldings. There, hung for a corbel to its dripstone, a curious leering face with its forked tongue out to give me welcome, and an appropriate one too, for the figure I made. But once beneath that prodigious roof-tree I forgot myself and everything that was mine, the hush, the coolness, the unfathomable twilight, drifted in on my small human consciousness. Not even the ocean itself is able so completely to receive one into its solacing bosom, except for the windows over my head, filtering with their stained glass the last western radiance of the sun, there was but little visible colour in those great spaces, and a severe economy of decoration. The stone piers carried their round arches with an almost intimidating impassivity. By deliberate design, too, or by some illusion of perspective, the whole floor of the building appeared steadily to ascend towards the east, where a dark, wooden, multitudinously figured rude screen shut off the choir and the high altar from the nave. I seem to have exchanged one universal actuality for another, the burning world of nature for this oasis of quiet. Here the wings of the imagination need never rest in their flight, out of the wilderness into the unknown. Thus resting I must again have fallen asleep, and so swiftly can even the merest freshet of sleep affect the mind that when my eyes opened, 
I was completely at a loss. Where was I? What demon of what romantic chasm had swept my poor drowsy body into this immense haunt? The din and clamour of an horrific dream, whose fainting rumour was still in my ear, became suddenly stilled. Then at one and the same moment a sense of utter dismay at earthly surroundings, no longer serene and peaceful, but grim and foreboding, flooded my mind, and I became aware that I was no longer alone. Twenty or thirty paces away, and a little this side of the rude screen, an old man was standing. To judge from the black and purple velvet and tassel-tagged gown he wore, he was a verger. He had not yet realised, it seemed, that a visitor shared his solitude, and yet he was listening. His head was craned forward and leaned sideways on his rusty shoulders. As I steadily watched him, he raised his eyes and, with a peculiar, stealthy deliberation, scanned the complete upper regions of the northern transept. Not the faintest rumour of any sound that may have attracted his attention reached me where I sat. Maybe a wild bird had made its entry through a broken pane of glass, and, with its cry, had, at the same moment, awakened me and caught his attention, or maybe the old man was waiting for some fellow occupant to join him from above. I continued to watch him. Even at this distance, the silvery twilight cast by the clerestory windows was sufficient to show me, though vaguely, his face, the high-slopping nose, the lean cheekbones, and protruding chin. He continued so long in the same position that I at last determined to break in on his reverie. At the sound of my footsteps, his head sunk cautiously back upon his shoulders, and he turned. And then he motionlessly surveyed me as I drew near. He resembled one of those old men whom Rembrandt delighted in drawing the knotted hands, the blank, drooping eyebrows, the wide, thin-lipped ecclesiastical mouth, the intent, cavernous, dark eyes beneath the heavy folds of their lids. White as a miller with dust, hot and draggled, I was hardly the kind of visitor that any self-respecting custodian would warmly welcome, but he greeted me, nonetheless, with every mark of courtesy. I apologised for the lateness of my arrival, and then explained as best I could, until I caught sight of you, I concluded lamely, I hadn't ventured very far in. Otherwise, I might have found myself a prisoner for the night. It must be dark in here when there is no moon. The old man smiled, but wryly. As a matter of fact, sir, he replied, the cathedral is closed to visitors at four. At such times, that is, when there is no afternoon service. Services are not as frequent as they were, but visitors are rare too. In winter, in particular, you notice the gloom, as you say, sir. Not that I ever spend the night here, though I am usually the last to leave. There's the risk of fire to be thought of, and I think I should have detected your presence here, sir. One becomes accustomed after many years. There was the usual trace of official pedantry in his voice, but it was more pleasing than otherwise. Nor did he show any wish to be rid of me. He continued his survey although his eye was a little absent, and his attention seemed to be divided. I thought, perhaps, I might be able to find a room for the night and really explore the cathedral tomorrow morning. It has been a tiring journey. I come from B. Ah, from B, is it? A fatiguing journey, sir, taken on foot. I used to walk in there to see a sick daughter of mine. Carriage parties occasionally make their way here, but not so much as once. We're too far out of the hurly-burly to be much intruded upon. Not that them who come to make their worship here are intruders far from it, but most that come are mere sightseers, and the fewer of them, I say, in the circumstances, the better. 
something in what I had said or in my appearance seemed to have reassured him. "'Well, I cannot claim to be a regular churchgoer,' I said. "'I am myself a mere sightseer, and yet even to sit here for a few minutes is to be reconciled.' "'Ah, reconciled, sir,' the old man repeated, turning away. "'I can well imagine it, after that journey on such a day as this, but to live here is another matter.' "'I was thinking of that,' I replied, in a foolish attempt to retrieve the position. "'It must, as you say, be desolate enough in the winter, for two-thirds of the year, indeed.' "'We have our storm, sir, the bad with the good,' he agreed. "'And our position is specially prolific of what they call sea-fog. "'It comes driving in for the sea for days and nights together, gale and mist, "'so that you can scarcely see your open hand in front of your eyes, even in broad daylight.' "'and the noise of it, sir, sweeping across the headland, "'and that wooliness of mist, if you take me, is most peculiar. "'It's shocking to a stranger. "'No, sir, we are left pretty much to ourselves "'when the fine weather birds are flown. "'You'd be astonished at the power of the winds here. "'There was a mason, a local man, too. "'Not above two or three years ago "'was blown clean off the roof from under the tower, "'tossed up in the air like an empty sack. "'But and the old man at last allowed his eyes to stray upwards to the roof again. But there's nothing much doing now, he seemed to be pondering. Nothing open. I mustn't detain you, I said, but you were saying that services are infrequent now. Why is that, when one thinks of... But tact restrained me. Pray don't think of keeping me, sir, as part of my duties. But from a remark you let fall, I was supposing you may have seen something that appeared... I understand not many months ago in the newspapers. We lost our dean, Dean Pomfrey, last November. To all intents and purposes, I mean, and his office has not yet been filled. Between you and me, sir, there's a hitch, though I should wish it to go no further. They are greedy monsters, those newspapers. No respect, no discretion, no decency in my view. And they copy each other like cats in a chorus. We have never wanted to be a notoriety here, sir, and not of late things of all times. We must face our own troubles. You'd be astonished how callous the mere sightseer can be, and not only them from over the water, whom our particular troubles cannot concern, but far worse, parties as English as you or me. They ask you questions you wouldn't believe possible in a civilised country. Not that they care what becomes of us, not one iota, sir. We talk of them mastered-up inquisitors in olden times, but there's many a human being in our own world would enjoy seeing a fellow-creature on the rack, if he could get the opportunity. It's a heartless age, sir. This was queerish talk in the circumstances, and after all, I, myself, was of the glorious company of the sightseers. I held my peace, and the old man, as if to make amends, asked me if I would care to see any particular part of the building. The light is smalling, he explained, but still, if we keep to the ground level, there'll be a few minutes to spare, and we shall not be interrupted if we go quietly on our way. For the moment the reference eluded me, I could only thank him for the suggestion, and once more beg him not to put himself to any inconvenience. I explained, too, that although I had no personal acquaintance with Dr. Pomfrey, I had read of his illness in the newspapers. "'Isn't he,' asked a little dubiously, "'the author of The Church and the Folk?' "'If so, he must be an exceedingly learned and delightful man.' "'Aye, sir,' the old verger put up a hand towards me. "'You may well say it, a saint if ever there was one, "'but it's worse than illness, sir, it's oblivion. 
and thank God the newspapers didn't get hold of more than a bare outline. He dropped his voice. This way, if you please. And he led me off gently down the aisle, once more coming to a standstill beneath the roof of the tower. What I mean, sir, is that there's very few left in this world who have any place in their minds for a sacred confidence. No reverence, sir. They would as leave all hallows and all it stands for were swept away tomorrow, demolished to the dust. And that gives me the greatest caution with whom I speak. But sharing one's troubles is sometimes a relief. If it weren't so, why do those Catholics have their wooden boxes all built for the purpose? What else, I ask you, is the meaning of their fasts and penances? You see, sir, I am myself, and have been for upwards of twelve years now, the Dean's verger. In the sight of no respecter of persons, of office and dignities, that is, I take it, I might claim to be even an elder brother. And our Dean, sir, was a man who was all things to all men. No pride of place, no vauntingness, none of your apron and gaiter, high and mightiness whatsoever, sir. And then that. And to come on us without warning, or at least without warning, as could be taken as such. I followed his eyes into the darkening stony spaces above us. A light like tarnished silver lay over the soundless vaultings. But so, of course, dusk, either of evening or daybreak, would affect the ancient stones. Nothing moved there. You must understand, sir, the old man was continuing, the procession for design service proceeds from the vestry over yonder, out through those wrought iron gates, and so under the rude screen and into the chancel there. Visitors are admitted on showing a card or a word to the verger in charge, but not otherwise. If you stand a pace or two to the right, you will catch a glimpse of the altar screen. Fourteenth century work, Bishop Robert de Beaufort, and a unique example of the age. But what I was saying is that when we proceeded for the services out of here into there, it has always been our custom to keep pretty close together, more seemingly indecent, sir, than straggling in like so many sheep. Besides, sir, aren't we at such times in the manner of an array marching us to war, if you take me? It's a lesson in objects. The third verger leading, then the choristers, boys and men, though sadly depleted, then the minor canons, then any other dignitaries who happen to be present, with the canon in residence, then myself, sir, followed by the dean. There hadn't been so much amiss up to then, and on that afternoon I can vouch, and I've repeated it at Norsham, there was not a single stranger out in this beyond here, sir, nave or transepts, not within view, that is, one can't be expected to see through four feet of Norman stone. Well, sir, we had gone on our way, and I had actually turned about, as usual, to bow Dr. Pomfrey into his stall, when I found to my consternation, to my consternation, I say, he wasn't there. It alarmed me, sir, and, as you might well believe, if you knew the full circumstances. Not that I lost my presence of mind. My first duty was to see all things to be in order and nothing unseemly to occur. My feelings were another matter. The old gentleman had left the vestry with us, that I knew. I had myself robed him as usual, and he, in his own manner, smiling with his, Well, Jones, another day gone, another day gone. He was always an anxious gentleman for time, sir how we spend it, and all. As I say, then, he was behind me when we swept out of the gates. I saw him coming on out of the tail of my eye. We grow accustomed to it, to see with the whole of the eye, I mean. And then, not a vestige. 
and me, well, sir, nonplussed, as you may imagine. I gave a look and sign at Cannonockham, and the service proceeded as usual while I hurried back to the vestry, thinking the poor gentleman must have been taken suddenly ill. And yet, sir, I was not surprised to find the vestry vacant and him not there. I had been expecting matters to come to what you might call a head. As best as I could, I held my tongue, and a fortunate thing it was that Canon Ockham was then in residence, and not Canon Lay Shugar, though perhaps I am not the one to say it. No, sir, our beloved Dean, as pious and harmless a gentleman as ever graced the church, was gone for ever. He was not to appear in our midst again. He had been, and the old man, with elevated eyebrows and long, lean mouth, nearly whispered the words into my ear. He had been absconded, abducted, sir. Abducted? I murmured. The old man closed his eyes, and with trembling lids added, He was found, sir late that night up there, in what they call the trophy room, sitting in a corner there weeping, a child. Not a word of what had persuaded him to go or misled him there. Not a word of sorrow or sadness, thank God. He didn't know us, sir. Didn't know me. Just simple, harmless. Memory all gone. Simple, sir. It was foolish to be whispering together like this, beneath these enormous spaces, with not so much as a clothes-moth, for sign of life within view. But I even lowered my voice still further. Were there no premonitionary symptoms? Had he been failing for long? The spectacle of grief in any human face is afflicting, but in a face as aged and resigned as this old man's, I turned away in remorse the moment the question was out of my lips. Emotion of any kind is a human solvent, and a sort of friendliness had sprung up between us. If you will just follow me, he whispered. There's a little place where I make my ablutions that might be of service, so we could converse there in better comfort. I am sometimes reminded of those words in Ecclesiastes, and a bird of the air shall tell of the matter. There is not much in our poor human affairs, sir, that was not known to the writer of that book. He turned and led the way with surprising celerity, gliding along in his thin-soled, square-toed, clerical springside boots, and came to a pause, outside a nail-studded door. He opened it with a huge key and admitted me into a recess under the central tower. We mounted a spiral stone staircase and passed along a corridor hardly more than two feet wide, and so dark that now and again I thrust out my fingertips in search of his black velveted gown to make sure of my guide. This corridor at length conducted us into a little room whose only illumination I gathered was that of the ebbing dusk from within the cathedral. The old man, with trembling rheumatic fingers, lit a candle, and thrusting its stick into the middle of an old oak table, pushed open yet another thick oaken door. "'You will find a basin and a towel in there, sir, if you will be so kind.' I entered. A print of the crucifixion was tin-tacked to the panelled wall, and beneath it stood a tin basin and a jug on a stand. Never was water sweeter. I laved my face and hands and drank deep, my throat like a parched river-course after a drought. What appeared to be a tarnished censer lay in one corner of the room. A pair of seven-branched candlesticks shared a recess with a mousetrap and a book. My eyes passed wearily, yet gratefully, from one to another of these mute, discarded objects, while I stood drying my hands. When I returned, the old man was standing motionless before the spike-barred grill of the window, peering out and down. "'You ask me, sir,' he said, turning his lank, waxen face into the feeble rays of the candle. 
You asked me, sir, a question which, if I understood you were right, was this. Was there anything that had occurred previous that would explain what I have been telling you? Well, sir, it's a long story, and one best restricted to them, perhaps, that have the goodwill of things at heart. All Hallows, I might say, sir, is my second home. I've been here boy and man for close on fifty-five years, and have seen four bishops pass away, and have served under no less than five several deans. Dr. Pomfrey, poor gentleman, being the last of the five. If such a word could be excused, sir, it's no exaggeration to say that Canon Lee Sugar is a greenhorn by comparison, which may be in part why he has never quite hit it off, as they say, with Canon Ockham, or even with Archdeacon Trafford, though he's another kind of gentleman altogether, and he is at present abroad. He had what they call a breakdown in health, sir. Now, in my humble opinion, what was required was not only wisdom and knowledge, but simple common sense. In the circumstances I'm about to mention, it serves no purpose for any of us to be talking too much, to be forever sitting at a table with shut doors and finger on lip and discussing what, to most intents and purposes, would hardly be called evidence at all, sir. What is the use of arguifying, splitting hairs, obdurating about trifles, when matters are sweeping rapidly on from bad to worse? I say it with all due respect, and not, I hope, thrusting myself into what doesn't concern me. Dr. Pomfrey might be with us now in his own self and reason, if only common caution had been observed. But now that the poor gentleman is gone beyond all that, there is no hope of action or agreement left, none whatsoever. They meet and meet, and they have now one expert, now another, down from London, and even from the continent, and I don't say they are not knowledgeable gentlemen either, nor a pride to their profession, but why not tell all? Why keep back the very secret of what we know? That's what I am asking, and what's the answer? Why simply that what they don't want to believe, what runs counter to their hopes and wishes and credibilities and comfort in this world, that's what they keep out of sight as long as decency permits. Canon Lee Sugar knows, sir, what I know, and how, I ask, is he going to get to grips with it at this late day if he refuses to acknowledge that such things are what every fragment of evidence goes to prove that they are? It's we, sir, and not the rest of the heedless world outside, who in the long and the short of it are responsible. And what I say is no power or principality here or hereunder can take possession of a place while those inside have faith enough to keep them out. But once let that falter, the seas are in. And when I say no power, sir, I mean, with all deference, even Satan himself. The lean, lank face had set the word like a wax mask. The black eyes beneath the heavy lids were fixed on mine with an acute intensity, though more inscrutable things haunted them, with an unfaltering courage. So dense a hush hung about us that the very stones of the walls seemed to be of silence solidified. It is curious what a refreshment of spirit, a mere tin basin full of water, may be. I stood leaning against the edge of the table so that the candlelight still rested on my companion. What is wrong here? I asked him boldly. He seemed not to have expected so direct an inquiry. Wrong, sir? Why, if I might make so bold, he replied with one faraway smile, and gently drawing his hand down one of the velvet lapels of his gown. If I might make so bold, sir, I take it that you have come as a direct answer to prayer. His voice faltered. 
I am an old man now and nearly at the end of my tether. You must realise, if you please, that I can't get any help that I can understand. I am not doubting that the gentlemen I have mentioned have only the salvation of the cathedral at heart, the cause, sir, and a graver responsibility yet. But they refuse to see how close to the edge of things we are and how we are drifting. Take me a situation. So far as my knowledge tells me, there is no sacred edifice in the whole kingdom of a piece that is, with all hollows, not only in mere size and age, but in what I might call sanctity and tradition that is so open, open I mean, sir, to attack of this peculiar and terrifying nature. Terrifying? Terrifying, sir. Though I hold fast to what wits my maker has bestowed upon me, where else, may I ask, would you expect the powers of darkness to congregate in open besiegement than in this narrow valley? First the sea out there. Are you aware, sir, that ever since the living remembrance, flood-tide has been gnawing and mumbling its way into this bay to the extent of three or four feet per annum? Forty inches and forty inches and forty inches corroding. On and on. Watch it, sir, man and boy, as I have these sixty years past, and then make a century of it. And now think a moment of the floods and gales that fall upon us autumn and winter through, and even in spring, when this valley is like a paradise to young eyes than any place on earth. They make the roads from the nearest towns well-nigh impassable, which means that for seven months of the year we are, to all intents and purposes, clean cut off from the rest of the world as the shindles out there are from the mainland. Are you aware, sir, I continue, that as we stand now, we are above a mile from traces of the nearest human habitation, and then merely the relics of a burnt-out old farmstead? I warrant that if, and which God forbid, you had been shut up here during the coming night, and it was a near thing, but what you weren't, I warrant you might have shouted yourself dumb out of the nearest window, if window you could reach, and not a human soul to heed or help you. I shifted my hands on the table. It was tedious to be asking questions that received only such vague and evasive replies, and it is always a little disconcerting in the presence of a stranger to be spoken to so close and with such positiveness. Well, I smiled. I hope I should not have disgraced my nerves to such an extreme as that. As a small boy, one of my particular fancies was to spend a night in a pulpit. There's a question, you know. The old man's solemn glance never swerved from my eyes. But I take it, sir, he said, if you had ventured to give out a text up there in the dark hours, your innocent young mind would not have been prepared for any kind of congregation. You mean, I said a little sharply, that the place is haunted? The absurd notion had flitted across my mind of some wandering tribe of gypsies chancing on a refuge so ample and isolated as this and taking up its quarters in its secret parts. The old church must be honeycombed with corridors and passages and chambers, pretty much like the one in which we were now concealed. And what does Catholic imply but an infinite hospitality within prescribed limits? But the old man had taken me at my word. I mean, sir, he said firmly, shutting his eyes, that there are devilish agencies at work here. He raised his hand. Don't, I entreat you, dismiss what I am saying as the wanderings of a foolish old man. He drew a little nearer. I have heard them with these ears. I have seen them with these eyes. Though whether they have any positive substance, sir, is beyond my small knowledge to declare. But what indeed? 
might we expect their substance to be? First, I take it, says the book, to be such as no man can by learning define, nor by wisdom search out. Is that so? Then I go by the book, and next, what does the same word, or very near it, I speak of the Apocrypha, say of their purpose? It says, and correct me if I go astray, devils are creatures made by God, and that for vengeance. So I say, good sir, we stop when we can go no further. Vengeance, but of their power, of what they can do, I can give you no definite evidences. It would be a byword if once the rumour was spread abroad, and if it is not so, why, I ask, does every expert that come here leave us in haste and in dismay? They go off with their tails between their legs. They see, they grope in, but they don't believe. They invent reasons, and they hasten to leave us. His face shook with the emphasis he laid upon the word. Why? Why? Because the experience is beyond their knowledge, sir. He drew back breathless, and, as I could see, profoundly moved. But surely, I said, every old building is bound in time to show symptoms of decay. Half the cathedrals in England, half its churches even, of any age, have been restored, and in many cases with ghastly results. This new grouting and so on, why, only the other day. All I mean is, why should you suppose mere wear and tear should be caused by any other agency than... The old man turned away. I must apologise, he interrupted me, with his inimitable admixture of modesty and dignity. I am but a poor mouth at explanations, sir. Decay, stress, strain, settling, dissolution. I have had these words bandied from lip to lip like a game at cup and ball. They fill me with nausea. Why, I am speaking not of dissolution, sir, but of repairs. Restorations, not decay, strengthening. Not a corroding loss, an awful progress. I could show you places, and chiefly obscured from direct view, and difficult of a close examination, sir, where stones, lately as rotten as pumice and fretted as a sponge, have been replaced by others, fresh quarried and nothing of their kind, within twenty miles. There are spots where massive blocks a yard or more square have been pushed into place by sheer force. All Hallows is safer at this moment than it has been for three hundred years. End of All Hallows, Part 1 Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.